Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Carlos Cruz, and I'd like to thank you for joining us on Titan's Law of Success radio show. We are here to help you increase your ability to focus, achieve, and measure success as a leader or manager. We have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Arlen Diamond. Dr. Diamond helps individuals, groups, and organizations change and grow. Multifaceted like a diamond, she has an extensive experience in a wide range of disciplines, including business, education, psychology, law, marketing, management, and consulting. This enables her to see things from a variety of angles, quickly cleave to the essence of a problem, and offer her clients creative and practical solutions. Dr. Arlen, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Carlos. So tell us a bit about your consulting firm, Diamond Associates. Uh, what are the elements of the services you offer? Diamond Associates was founded by me and a couple of other people in 1981. And we offer um, a range of consulting services. And they are um, leadership development, management development. Mostly it's anything that has to do with people in the, in the workplace, but also... Uh, process improvement because of my background. Um, through the years, different people have come in and come out of the out of the firm, and it's car- it's currently mostly me and um, some virtual employees that I bring in as I need them. So you basically have a, a little boutique thing, and you also you say you deal with processes, which is kind of important since you're in Silicon Valley and well the engineering work that goes on here. But you, we were talking earlier, and you said you started your career in New York City. What kind of mentors did you connect with, and how did they help you grow? I I have been extraordinarily lucky. Um, My mentoring, I think, started long before I ever had my first job. I belonged to a um, Jewish service group called B'nai B'rith, and I was a B'nai B'rith girl. And because we were in New York City, we had professional leadership training. And so uh, from the time I was 12 years old, I had leadership training. I had... Uh, group involvement. I had public speaking training, and it, it was incredibly valuable. Um, later on, I had um, solid businessmen as mentors, and I emphasize the word men because back in those days, there were very few women that were in management. But what we would do, now where people carpool, we would cab pool. So a group of people would meet at the corner, and they'd share a cab going into New York. And um, I learned about business, I learned about Wall Street, I learned about management issues, just sitting in the cab with these guys. And then, um, as I said, I've been extraordinarily lucky. I'm a redhead. I was an attractive redhead in my youth. And um, it was easy for men to mentor me. I wasn't a threat. I was fun. I was was intelligent. You know, I I could learn things. So... um, from the time I had my first job, my first full-time job, I've had men who have taken me under their wing professionally and, and just encouraged me, uh, taught me things, enabled me to get promotions. It just growing up in New York City and, and having that business community. Um, I grew up in the Garment Center and uh, incredible stories about some of the experiences with bosses that I had. And then I went to work in international uh, sales. I worked for the largest international hospital and and doctor distribution company in New York City. And um, just some wonderful experiences and lots of lessons learned. So I've been really fortunate. So one of the important things that I I got out of what you said is, if you want to grow and you want to go into a career, 
whatever it happens to be, surround yourself with the people that you want to basically be in a way. You know, that's a great way of looking at it. One of the pieces of advice that I give people that I'm consulting to or mentoring, and particularly to women I give this advice because we, we as women tend not to get that lesson clearly, is hang out with the people above you, not the people below you. Um, I'll tell you one story about that, which really made it hit home for me. Um, a number of years ago, a friend of mine was the finance chair for the then lieutenant governor, and he had just won re-election. He took his senior staff away for a celebratory weekend. Um, my friend Susan was the only executive woman in the group, but there was another group that he also took that consisted of the more junior staff, and there were some women in that group. There were two hotels selected, one for the senior execs and one for the staff. Susan opted to go with her friends, to go with where, where there were other women. She lost all credibility that weekend because the guys in the small boutique hotel hanging around made all of the decisions and bonding and everything else um, for the next season. And suddenly she was one of the girls, not one of the executives. So um, to your point, I think it's very important to look up, to dress up, to think up, and wherever possible to hang out with and learn from those that are in senior positions to you. I think that's a, that's a very good point uh, to bring up. And all of this deals with one form or another with interpersonal relationships in the, in the workplace. And you deal with this and how basically people are able to relate and how they treat each other, which was a perfect example. One small decision can either make you or break you, and, and you won't even realize it until after the fact. So what are some of the other challenges uh, people would face, executives and managers would face? I think the challenges are manifold. Um, to just kind of put a frame around it, we're dealing in the workplace today with both men and women, and there are differences in how men and women are raised, generally speaking, and how they're trained. We're dealing with people from a variety of ages, from the young 20-year-old to the senior citizen who is still working side by side. Uh, we're dealing with people from all over the world, having been raised in many different cultures with, with a different value set, with different experiences. And we're dealing with what we call knowledge workers, which means they don't work really very well when you're whipping them. You have to find other ways of managing them. So management and leadership today consists of learning how to negotiate, to be persuasive, to have what's called emotional intelligence, but what I think of as empathy, to be able to, um, I was going to say speak the language, and I don't mean that literally, I mean it figuratively, to be able to find ways to communicate effectively with people with different value systems, different experiences, different cultures. Uh, rewards and recognitions are different. In some cultures, people are embarrassed if you single them out. In other cultures, everybody wants to be singled out, just as one example. So this, the, the successful manager or leader is someone who doesn't work from a, a recipe, but knows how to treat people as individuals. And I want to give you just a, kind of an example that just popped into my head. I was back in New York 
the uh, president of, of our company, CEO of our company, was a man named Mr. Lowe. And he saw me one day kind of running for the elevator, as it were, and he stopped me. And he said, Arlen, why are you in such a rush? I see that most of the time you're perfectly comfortable staying late, working Saturday. I'm a workaholic, working Saturdays, but two nights a week, you seem to be running out of here. And I said, well, I'm taking a class across town, and in order to be on time for class, I've got to rush off. He said, oh, my chauffeur's not doing anything now because I don't leave for another hour or so. Why don't I have my chauffeur drive you to class? And from that time on, two nights a week, I was limousine, chauffeur driven to class. You know, on his part, it was a little thoughtful thing. On my part, it was an enormous favor. And it, among other things that Mr. Lowe did, I was loyal to the to the death. That's one thing is growing that loyalty base. Yes. Oh, it's critically important how you treat people uh, in, in a genuine way. How you treat people in a genuine way is probably the most important attribute of leadership or management. Right. Do you treat them as a family member or do you treat them as an employee? And some people, it's amazing how when you do a little thing like what they did for you, would propel somebody to actually want to go and go above and beyond than what they're actually doing for for the employee. So speaking of the knowledge that you just talked about, the knowledge base, can you share with us a little bit about a study you did with C-level executives? Sure. Um, I, I, spent, I spent hours, uh, actually between two and five hours with each of 50 C-level executives. Most of them were CEOs. Uh, some were general managers of, like, for example, National Semiconductor, huge semiconductors, so they were equivalent to CEOs of, of their division. Uh, most of them were here in Silicon Valley. Most of them were in engineering high tech, uh, and there were some exceptions to that. I did a couple of phone interviews with people in other parts of the country. My questionnaire it was an open-ended questionnaire designed to learn how do you, where do you want it, and how do you manage for creativity? I um, operationally defined creativity as a process and innovation as a product. And I wanted to learn not about creativity and research and development alone, but creativity across all the spheres of the organization. Um, and and it, was, it was a fascinating study because what, well, several things happened. The first thing that happened is when I said I had a two-hour interview, I got laughed at and they said, if you're lucky, we'll give you a half hour. And then um, everyone stayed with me for the two hours. In some cases, obviously, they had to bring me back again. You drew them but in. I drew them. They drew themselves in, actually. In other cases, it was up to five hours of interview time. And what many of them said during that process was, oh, you're making us think about things we should be thinking about and haven't been thinking about. So it wasn't so much that I was teaching them, but I was stimulating their um, mental act, their creativity, right. their mental activity. And what I learned, generally speaking, was they wanted it. They'd love to have it everywhere. They don't want it to be loose cannon style. They don't want somebody to just go in and change a process willy-nilly. But they wanted to have the opportunity for these people to, to be able to suggest changes. And they felt that it was being stifled. And the blame game was very interesting. The blame game was um, HR's fault 
or management's fault. What I was told by many, many people, and I can give you some examples if you'd like, was that it got stifled at the management level. I, I gave a speech some time ago on this topic, and a friend of mine was in the audience, as a matter of fact, and she's a retired Oracle executive. And Carolyn raised her hand and she said, excuse me, Arlen, but you're blaming the wrong people. She said, the manager is caught in the middle. He has mandates from above that he has to meet, deliverables he has to meet, and he has to encourage his people to meet those deliverables. And so he really doesn't have the time. And it was an excellent point, and I have modified my speech <laughs> accordingly. But, but it's an interesting point because it brings to what the real problem is. The real problem is that people want it, but they don't have processes in, pl in place to get it. They do, of course, have whole R&Ds and things of that nature. But simple suggestions, slight changes, tweaking something that's going to make it better, those are the kinds of things that I think of as people being in focus and creative in their work. Um, which kind of leads me to another point, with, a little bit aside from what you're saying. But, you know, when people talk about being bored, I'm never bored when I'm doing something. And I'm never bored because I'm focused on what I'm doing. And being the lazy person that I am, I'm always looking for ways to make it better, make it easier. And it seems to me that that's a significant point. If people were encouraged to really focus and not just blindly color within the lines. If people were encouraged to make suggestions, to, to offer um, improvements or new ideas or things of that nature, it would make even the most humdrum job uh, much more stimulating. I, I, I've got to give you this example. As I said, National Semiconductor was, well, the GM in National Semiconductor was one of the people I was interviewing. And so I had to come back a few times. And so I spent some time in the lobby. And there was a receptionist in the lobby. And at first I was really puzzled because she wasn't attractive. And usually receptionists are young, attractive women. Um, she had um, difficulty with the English language. She was, English was her second language and she wasn't that great at it. Um, and, and so I was puzzled. I noticed a few things. I noticed she knew people by name. I noticed one day one of the employees had left a briefcase in the lobby, and she immediately picked up the phone and called that employee. And I noticed something that really warmed my heart. A, a family came in, and they were poorly dressed. They were obviously poor, and they were job hunting. They were looking for a job. And instead of just pushing them away or being rude to them, as I've seen other people do, she was so cordial, and she told them where they could go, where they could go within the organization to, you know, perhaps find the job. She gave them careful directions on how to get to that building, and she treated them the same way she would have treated the CEO of the company. And so now I knew why she was the receptionist in that lobby. And so I mentioned it to the GM that I was uh, interviewing, and he chuckled, and he said she gets more gifts than anyone else in this organization. She was extraordinarily creative. And so when I think about creativity, I don't want you to think about the new, latest, greatest product. It's how do you do your job? How do you treat people? How do you make things better? When it comes to strategies and tactics for promotion in the executive level, uh, how would you define them? Oh, I think there's several elements, and obviously it's going gonna, it's gonna to differ person to person, department to department. But here are some basics. Um, 
you need to be noticed in a positive way. You can't be a clown. You need to be noticed in a positive way. You need to um, make your boss look good. Uh, you need to have a positive relationship with the people around you because uh, if you're known as somebody that's hypercritical, you're less likely to get promote, promoted. You need to do an outstanding job. Uh, when you think about that uh, working in class, working out of class that you hear in, in union shops, uh, where people are not willing to take on additional responsibilities and not willing to show that they have the stuff to get promoted, uh, they're less likely to be promoted, that people are going to be passed up. Obviously, in some circumstances, people get promoted by seniority, which I don't think, so, I don't think that's a good way to go. But, um, but if, you want, if you want to grow professionally, you want to be mentored by people or consulted or coached or, you know, whichever word you want to throw on that, by people who are able to find out what works for you. Um, when I work with people as a consultant, I, I work with people very individually, and we, and we look at both strategy and tactics. We look at professional image. We look at the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you hold your stand, how you um, uh, interact in your group setting, when you make suggestions and when you shut up, you know, right. all of those kinds of things. But it's, it's your professional image and your professional skills coupled with... Um, how you present yourself and the visibility that you get that's going to enable you to get promoted, not necessarily guarantee it, but it certainly will help it. So what are the, some of the challenges you've identified in working with multi-level executives? One of the things that one of the CEOs said to me, actually it was more than one CEO, one of the things I've been told repeatedly, I think, is how hard it is here in Silicon Valley in particular to promote people into management, that we have these brilliant technical people, but um, they're nerds, to use the, the jargon, that their social skills, their interpersonal sh skills, their soft skills, if you will, are so poorly developed that they do not have the kinds of skills that are necessary to be promoted. So if you think about levels to, of, of promotion, if you start on a supervisory level, there are certain skills that are required. The higher up the chain you go, the uh, broader and the more um, abstract the skills are. And I'll give you an example of one of the clients that I worked with. One of our fire departments had promoted a man to chief who had skipped a few levels up that 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 rung for promotion, and he and he was African American, and so there was a lot of grumbling that the only reason he had gotten promoted was because of his color, because they were you know trying to do an affirmative action thing, and so I was brought in to do conflict resolution and team building with the commander level, which would be the 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 directors and vice presidents in a, comparing it in a corporate world. Um, who were grumbling, wasn't, it wasn't fair, it wasn't fair, how come this guy got promoted kind of thing. And so one of the things that I did, because it was a fire department, was I looked at the ladder. What is the ladder that you have to climb? And as you climb that ladder, 
starts out being a fireman, starts out actually fighting fires. It starts out as a supervisory level, fighting and directing how to fight fires. And then it gets to be, as you climb that ladder, it gets to be more administrative and less physical, which is kind of good because people age. But when it gets to be the fire chief or the CEO of the fire department, what you're really talking about is public relations, talking to the press, the politics of dealing with city council. Stuff again. It's it is a much higher mm-hmm. level interpersonal stuff, and it's almost exclusively the interpersonal stuff. And so, I asked these guys, you know, have you done that? Do you want to do that? Oh hell no, said they. Uh, and and they came to the realization that the right person had been selected for the job, because the man that had been selected had been someone who had taken the time to learn how to deal with the press. His public speaking skills were extraordinary. Uh, I coached him a little. His, his public speaking skills were really good. He did go every every week to the city council meetings. He was known, and he was known in a, in a very positive manner. And he was cooperative with committees and things of that nature. So you got to look at the fact that, that promotion doesn't just mean more money. It, it, and it doesn't just mean more of the same responsibilities. Quite often, it means very different responsibilities. And not everybody can equally handle those different responsibilities. But the higher up you go, the more abstract and the more interpersonal relationships, the more your negotiation and persuasion skills. Um, I just wrote an article uh, called, um, I can't remember the exact name of it, but something about leadership traits for CFOs. And I said nothing about numbers. It had nothing to do with numbers. It had to do with negotiation and persuasion. So tell us a little bit about um, the executive levels. You said you did a a study about C-level executives. Can you tell us how you define uh, a C-level executive? I I think the marketplace defines it. So um, because companies are so huge, I guess, we have gone from president, vice president. um, So we have many levels. You know, we start out with uh, supervisor, um, manager, senior manager, director, senior director, vice president, senior vice president, president. You know, and then that the C level, which is the highest level below the board of directors itself, and so uh, it's this, the CEO who is the chief executive officer, who's almost always the president, not always though. It's the CFO who is the chief financial officer, which is above controller and accountant and all of those. It is the COO who is the chief operations officer, uh, etc. So that what we've done is, it's kind of like nobody's a star anymore, they're superstars. So the, the C level is the same as the superstar level. It's the highest level in the organization below the board of directors. So do you have any interactivity with the board of directors? Yes, I, as a matter of fact, I train boards. Uh, and one of the books that I've written is a board of directors training manual. I'm sure you'll agree that in uh, Silicon Valley, you'll find those who have a very high intellect because of what we basically do here. But they seem to be challenged when it comes to personal relations. What are some of the important things to understand when confronted with people with these types of personalities? Let me, let me 
kind of back off from the question for a second. Um, we attract the brightest technical people in the world in spite of all of the problems that we can talk about politically that happen to exist. When I, when I, um, I did another study, and the study that I did was why, why do they stay and why do they go, basically. And I did that about some years ago for Joint Ventures Silicon Valley. And it was because of the brains that, that bring them here and keep them here in spite the brain of trust. Yeah. the brain trust. But we also have the great universities. So people come here to study. People come here because of the interaction of, of their brains. So we attract highly technical people. That's number one. The other thing that, that I think becomes part, the background for the challenge, if you will, is the fact that the people that we, oh, I've got to tell you the story of what happened at MIT. The people that we attract are people who are narrowly laser beam focused. If you think about people, you've got um, people that are highly theoretical that kind of are searchlight focused and, and see, you know, when you think about the Renaissance man, for example, or woman, you have people that have interests in a multiple, uh, multiple areas. When I think about a laser beam focused, I think about all of our brilliant scientists, tech types, mathematicians, PhDs in, in very narrowly uh, specified fields. Like Berkeley, Livermore Labs up. Those, yeah, yeah. Northern Bay Area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in any event, so we emphasize math and science. These people are math and science oriented, many of them from early childhood on. What they lack is the liberal arts background. If you talk with them, and I talk with them all the time, if you talk with them, they wouldn't dream of reading a novel unless it was science fiction or, or some shoot 'em up kind of a thing. Uh, but they haven't had the background in Shakespeare. They haven't had the background in philosophy. They haven't had the background in liberal arts because we're pushing them from early childhood to focus on math and science. And so they haven't acquired those skills. They also, as kids, tend to be focused on, I'm going to say tinker toys, and that's not fair, but chemistry sets on those kinds of toys, those kinds of games. More analytical stuff. That are more analytical, mm -hmm. that, that, that add to the math and science interests. Um, and so they're not well-rounded. And when you need to be promoted into any kind of a management position, you need to have much more interpersonal relationship skills. But not only that, I want to tell you another story. Um, there was a man that was um, referred to me from one of our biggest, most successful Fortune 10, probably Fortune 50, whatever, companies. Uh, and he was on the verge of being fired. And they were trying to save him and I mean that literally, they were trying to save him because he was technically unbelievably brilliant and valuable to them. But he had a tendency to sit on the floor rather than at his desk and yell across the room, hey girl, bring me some coffee and other... No, no filter. No filter. Mm -hmm. but, but crude, rude. Right. I worked with him. At first, he was loath to open up to me because I was just a girl, right? I was just a woman and had no value as far as he was concerned. But I drew him out and took some time. And here is what I learned. He had been a kid 
responsible for his mother and sister in Beirut during the bombings in Beirut. His father, I don't remember, was either dead or off to war. I mean, at that part, I don't remember. But he, um, his instincts were better than the people in the bunkers. So they'd be in a bomb shelter, and he, something would tell him to get out and grab his, his mother and sister, who, according to his account, were both hysterical, and he saved them. The bottom line is this guy was sharp, and his instincts were incredible. He built this suit of armor around himself and had no respect for authority, had no respect for women, had no respect for anyone, basically. Um, and what I did, I didn't try to take the armor off, but I, I told him or I talked with him about the fact that it was less than perfectly successful in the environment in which he was living and that he needed to develop strategies that worked here. So we needed to look at taking chinks out of the armor you know, little pieces right. at a time. And he got it. He understood it. I mean, the guy was brilliant. There was no question that he was brilliant. And little by little, he, uh, I'm going to use the word softened, for lack of a better word at the moment, but he allowed other people in in a, in a more positive manner. He understood that in this environment, in this culture, that behavior was inappropriate. And since he was success-driven, no one had ever held the mirror up. Nobody had ever said to him, you know, that doesn't work here. They just were annoyed by it and angry with him. So it, it, the bottom line, I guess, to what I'm saying is that you have to hold a mirror up to people in a way that they can see. And you have to do it kind of with grace and, and leaving them with dignity. You cannot do it where what you're doing is insulting them. And um, that takes, I think, it takes skill. I think that's a big challenge itself, trying to help somebody in that way, but a lot of people like to mirror. So if he's confrontational, you become confrontational. And sure. it becomes very primitive in itself. But on that that line of thought, what would you say are some of the important uh, traits necessary to becoming an effective uh, leader or manager? So let's make a distinction, all right? Uh, there's so much overlap, it's, it's ridiculous. In my book, um, Leading and Managing a Global Workforce, I, you know, I, I start talking about all the different definitions that people give to, to leaders and managers. But a manager is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations. A manager is responsible for getting things done. A leader is responsible for the vision, the ideas, the, the overall uh, parameters of something and, and may not dig into the trenches, although some leaders are called micromanagers. Um, and, and just as an aside, a leader can be good or bad. We've had some horrible, I mean, Hitler comes to mind. We've had some horrible leaders as well as some wonderful ones. Um, but to be effective, whether you're a bad leader, I mean, whether you're a leader for bad or you're a leader for good or a leader in the workplace, um, what you have to have is the skill to have people admire, trust, and respect you. They have to want to follow you. Um, you you can whip them into following you, and so you know becomes fear motivated. But that doesn't last so long because if it's fear motivated, uh, what will happen is they'll do just the, the absolute minimum that they can get away with to not incur your wrath. But if you want, and coming back to the workplace for a minute, if you want people to do their best for you, then you have to be like my Mr. Lowe example from before. 
Mr. Lowe, at least for me, and I think for most other people in the organization, because he treated us as individuals. Uh, and that doesn't mean he you know, gave us all M&Ms, but because we were individuals rather than just a, you know, a sea of serfs, um, there, was, there was admiration and respect and loyalty. So a good leader, a good leader, um, incurs admiration, loyalty. And then you can start talking about what kind of traits. I mean, do they have to be charismatic? Do they have to be great communicators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think there's some variability there, and we could talk about that for a week. The, the manager is more detail-oriented. Obviously, the more leadership skills, as we've just talked about them, a manager has, the the better that manager's relationship will be with the people he or she manages. But a manager also, to borrow from my friend Carolyn, has to get things, deliver the deliverables, has to get things done. And so a manager will probably have more detailed knowledge of the tasks themselves. The leader may not even know what those tasks are. Manager will have, if he or she is good, more detailed knowledge about individual preferences. As I said earlier, you don't, you can't, to be fair is not the same as treating people exactly the same. You don't treat people mm -hmm. exactly the same because they're different. Right. Um, to digress a minute, uh, yeah, when I'm helping in a selection prop, uh, process for executives, one of the things I look at is what motivates them. Uh, you know, I look at values, I look at ethics, I look at character things, but what motivates them? And I remember saying to one of my CEOs, I think you ought to hire this guy, but it's not about money, it's about status. Give him his own parking spot, give him the key to the executive washroom, and he will do anything that needs to be done because he is totally status motivated. Somebody else may be totally security motivated. They got six kids to feed. Um, somebody else may be uh, curiosity and, and intellectual stimulation motivated and so on and so forth. People's motivations are different. And so good managers will learn what, it, what are the motivators for their individual uh, uh, people that they manage. Mm -hmm. I was trying not to use the word employees. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better word. Um, so manager is more hands-on, more detailed. Leader is, as um, oh, Jay Pinson, who's, who's been dead for a number of years, um, once said, the first in the minefield. The leader is the first in the minefield. And I think I quote him in my book. So let's talk about the global environment, especially being here in Silicon Valley, that's just a perfect storm. Everybody from across the world, you have, for the most part, you have China, you have India, and then you have Europe, as well as the Middle East. Four different distinct areas with four different... And Africa now. And, and South yes, America. Yes, we're starting to see and that. And Mexico. We're starting to see that yeah, grow as well. Yeah, but yeah. For, the, for the four primary ones, we have basically four different main cultures that people have to learn how to how to deal with itself. So what would be some of the points managers and executives should take into consideration when it comes to the global environment? So I'm going to tell you a story that has nothing to do with the global environment. I moved into my townhouse while it was being built. And I lived just a block away from where I live now. And I was over there one day watching them lay carpet. And I come from a middle-class background, and aesthetics are very important to me. And, and 
I'm watching them lay the carpet in the corner of the living room and wondering or worrying, to be more precise, as to whether they're matching the edges perfectly. There's a phrase for that, mitering or something. And as I was doing that, I, I suddenly realized the people that were laying the carpet probably never had carpet in their own home, that they were day laborers. And I shut my mouth rather than worrying out loud. I think that that's a significant, for me, it was a significant lesson. I think that that's a very significant lesson that we have to be aware of, that in, in different cultures, there have been different lifestyles. There have been different life experiences. Um, and when, we, when we're managing people from different cultures, we have to take that into account. We also have to take into account, for example, what happened under communism? Under Mao, under Chinese communism, all creativity was stifled. Uh, the only education was Mao's little red book, and people had to memorize it aloud. Uh, everyone wore the same uniform. It was, like, it was literally like living in a prison. People spied upon each other. Um, family members were afraid to think out loud because they their children were taught to spy on them and report anything. So what happened is years and years and years of people living in fear and in a very stifling conformity. And now they've come free to a very large extent. It's not perfect by any means. There's still a lot to be desired. But, but it's certainly a hell of a lot free, freer than it was. But we still have those kinds of cultural um, experiences ingrained. And so come back to creativity when you're asking someone to be creative. The odds are very high that if they come from those kinds of environments, whether China or someplace else, uh, they come from those environments, they're not risk takers. They're very risk averse. And so consequently, they want to know in precise detail what's expected of them and should they use a red pen or a blue pen seriously. So you, you have to take that into account. You have to take into account the fact that as these developing nations are developing, what we're learning is, again, using China and India as examples, their math and science education, college education, is far superior to ours now. We have, we're now, I think, 45th or 47th. We're down on the we're list. We're down. Yeah. We're way down. And uh, the education system in math and science in uh, India and China in particular, but also other parts of the world, is superlative. So um, they have the technical, technical know-how, but the social, their whole social environment is different. And, and in many cases, you have people who are accustomed to being managed by fear. And, uh, and if we ima manage them in our project management gentle style, uh, they may not always hear the message that they have deliverables to deliver or that they have deadlines to meet. Um, and then the other thing is, is words we use, euphemisms or um, soft words. Like, for example, just for example, when you say, I want a quality product. Well, my concept of quality, coming back to my carpet example, my concept of quality might be vastly different from somebody from a developing nation's concept of quality. Time is different. Um, if you're in 
um, particularly Hispanic cultures, if you go you know down into into Mexico and, and South America and Central America, things that are, are far more important than being on time. Family is far more important than being on time. I mean, years ago, we used to have the expression manana, which was derogatory. But, but the point was, they didn't make punctuality as high a priority as I, coming from New York, was taught to make it. And so businessmen would have an appointment. These, this, these are true stories. Businessmen would go down to one of these countries, fly in, have an appointment, only to be told that Mr. So-and-so wasn't available. Well, why not? Well, he had a family situation. We're not sure. And we're not talking about emergency, by the way, when I say situation. You know, we're not sure when he'll be back. I taught in an MBA program for years, and uh, there was a young man in uh, one of my classes who was a dedicated student who really, really wanted to do well. And he came from a Mexican background, um, and his family was from Fresno, and we're here in, in Santa Clara County. And he um, was absent more often than he should have been. And when I privately talked to him about it, he was very apologetic and said that um, his mother insisted that they go to Fresno for this family function or that family function, and he, he had to do it. He couldn't say no. He wound up having to take an incomplete in the class because he wasn't there for the final because the family pressure. And, and it, again, it wasn't because of an emergency situation. It was somebody's birthday or you know an anniversary or something to that nature. So values are different. What's, it, what's important has, is different. So part of our task is to make sure that, I'm going to use the word contract, that we contract with people in such a way that both sides of that contract know exactly what's expected, how it's expected, what, what, what the deliverables are, what the timelines are, and how if you have to go away, if there's some other thing that comes in the way, why it's important to find time to come back and, and do it. And we, on our part, need to be far more flexible than we're accustomed to being. So it, it's different in different cultures. I was in, um, I was in Israel in 91, and it was a time when uh, refugees were coming in from different parts of the world. And in Israel, you don't get kind of let loose into the society. You're put into a halfway house environment, and you're, you're taught the laws, the language, the customs, you're helped to get a job, etc., before you kind of let loose on uh, society. The people from Russia were um, different and had different needs and acquired the um, the skills earlier, and these are generalizations that I'm making, than the people from Ethiopia. The people that came in from Ethiopia had not had um, cities, the kinds, you know, they didn't come from the kinds of backgrounds where a lot of those skills would have been mm -hmm. acquired, like learning how to drive, for example, whereas the people from Russia had many, many more of the city skills. And so the Israelis who were doing the training had to have different programs for the different groups. Now, of course, there are exceptions to everything I'm saying. I Please, I'm not making absolute statements. They're just generalizations. But I think the same thing applies, that when we're working with people from different cultures, we have to be aware of what their culture is. We have to, do, to, to a large extent, accommodate to their cultures while at the same time 
holding them to our standards. And, and it's kind of a tricky balance. So let's go ahead and take everything that you just said and throw a thick layer of mud on it. And let's talk about telecommuting. Ah. So how does, uh, how would a manager, or how would you manage or direct people who are, you physically do not interact with? Because looking at somebody's facial expression is about 80% of a conversation. But now when you're IMing them or texting them or sending them an email, that's out of the window. So it's 3,000% more difficult. Uh, and, and in a sense, in some cases, it's easier. Because if I am communicating by the written word as opposed to verbal, if I'm communicating by the, the written word, I can be very detailed in instructions and, and you can translate it if you come from a, a different language background. So in, in some sense, it depends on the nature of the job. So there's, there's pros and cons. Um, to allow people to telecommute whose job it is to do things where they're on the computer and they're being creative and they don't have to interact with other people a lot is kind of a wonderful gift. And in fact, um, one of the reasons that it grew to such popularity was because it saved office space, which was presumed to be a great savings to companies. We could argue that one. Um, but I had a next-door neighbor who uh, was one of the first people to telecommute in her company, and she was pregnant at the time. And I helped her write the proposal to get her to get them to, to approve it. And, but the job that she did was something that could be measured. The output could be measured. Her contribution could be measured by, um, by the product that came out of the computer, so to speak. Um, what we've learned is that too much telecommuting is a bad thing. Aristotle said all things in moderation. All right. So what, what's evolved is people being um, less and less tied to each other, less and less socializing with each other, less and less involved and interactive. There was a book called Jamming. I think that was like music jam, jamming, jazz jamming. And I, I wish I had written the book. This is a wonderful book that I really recommend to everyone. I didn't write it. By a man uh, whose name I think was Cal, K-A-O. And he went around the world and he looked at how in work environments enabled or, or discouraged communication. And one example that I dearly love that came out of what, his work, not mine, but came out of his work, was a company that had gotten rid of its elevators and its regular staircases and created this one big, broad staircase where, uh, with, with wide um, stairs as well as you know, deep, and, deep and wide both, where people could stop and chat. And everybody had to interact with everybody, as it were, on this one staircase. Um, Bruno Bettelheim, who was a brilliant, psychologist talked about children and he talked about the in-between places. Uh, the in-between places for a child that might be on the staircase, might be in the hallway. And so using that same concept, it is in the casual interaction, it is in the in-between spaces, so to speak. It's you and I sitting and chatting together where some unique idea will, will hit us. And so what's lacking, what's lost in the telecommuting is that face-to-face -face interaction. So, so the friendliness is lost. 
the the social connectedness is lost the nonverbal clues are lost um, there's usually you know a lot of accountability people were afraid of accountability but accountability can be you know your output can be measured but creativity is lost except in those fields where creativity is just my brain not having to do anything else uh, I write a lot of articles um, I've written published hundreds of articles and, as you know, four books. Uh, they come about in a combined way. They come about because I've had a conversation with someone and that conversation gets me thinking about something. And then I will go to my computer and I'll start typing. And what will come out is my ideas along with what I've learned from others. But the stimulation is usually because of some kind of, of conversation. So I think a lot of creativity has gotten lost and a lot of um, morale has gotten lost because when you're alone, you're alone, you're alone. Marissa Myers from Yahoo, I think, did an incredibly brave thing when she mandated that her employees come back to work. And it was dramatic. It was um, one of the first steps in change management. I mean, I teach change management. I go in and I... You know, I do change management. I mean, I, I, I do all that kind of change. And a dramatic first step is a great way to start. So by bringing everybody back, she enabled all of those things that had gotten lost. She got grumbling, and I'm sure some people left because of it. And and um, I'm not in Yahoo, but I, from what I understand, uh, it's eased off some, and some people can telecommute some of the time, but not all of the time. But being together in the same room is so important. What I do, I'm not, you know, out there doing staircases, but when I look at, at people living in cubicles, I will often suggest to management rearrangement of those cubicles so that work groups can be together and, and maybe have a small center table in the middle. Uh, other examples are now um, technology has enabled so many wonderful things that um, almost like a wheelchair. You remember school desks that had the little arm? So it's almost like a wheelchair with an arm, which has got plugged in, and, and people with their computers can kind of drive themselves around and regroup however they need to for whatever project they're working on. Um, there's got to be ways that actually encourage the interaction rather than discourage it and and whether you're in a cubicle or you're in your second bedroom on your computer, you know, um, people need opportunities to interact. And so to come to full circle on your question, uh, telecommuting has both good and bad aspects and it needs to have some balance around it. But for the manager, you, you need to define the tasks in such a way as to be able to measure outcome so that you need to be able to hold people accountable um, so that in fact you have a certain I mean not over control I'm not talking about micromanaging but you need to have a certain amount of control to make sure that the project's getting done and you know there's millions of different project management tools that make that easier so let's shift gears uh, just slightly let's talk about creative people in today's Silicon Valley environment what seems to be, in your experience, the challenges? You're into my pet peeves now. So what I see happening is children 
not playing together without a parent hovering over them. Children not having the opportunity to go any place where they're not being driven by a parent and supervised by a parent. Um, I've been to birthday parties of little kids, and mom or dad, but usually mom, has gone online and got a whole package of Dora the Explorer or, you know, whatever the current kind of thing is. And every moment of the birthday party is organized. Uh, children are put into it, whether they're little girls in, in ballet, or little boys in soccer, or little girls in soccer. It's supervised and organized. We get into the classroom, and it's rote memorization. So we have taken, and I think all children, or almost all children, are naturally creative. And we have taken from day one and stifled that creativity and stifled their ability to make decisions and stifled their ability to be persuasive and negotiate with each other. Um, I grew up in New York City, and I was a latchkey kid. And growing up, I grew up in the Bronx. And growing up in the Bronx, as you did, growing up in the Bronx, you were hanging out with lots of different kids. And they were sizes and shapes and personalities. And um, when you were little, there were adults hovering, but in the background. And then unless you were physically killing each other or out in the, you know, running out in the street with cars coming. Yeah, or too <laughs> quiet, right? Um, what would happen is you were left alone. You were left alone to work out the rules of the game to negotiate with each other, to, to either get liked or disliked, you know, to deal with the bullies, um, to be a girl and, and learn how to play it safe. All of those kinds of things, those of us that played together without the parents telling us when, how, why, what, you know, and how high to jump, we had those opportunities to learn problem solving and decision making, to learn to be creative. We made up our own games. It wasn't that somebody else gave us the games and the rules. But, I mean, there were certain rules. We played stickball, and, you know, there was a certain amount. Of, but mostly it was made up as we went along. Um, not always agreed to by everybody in the game, but made up. So what we've done now, and, and I, think, I think education was freer back then, believe it or not. I may be wrong about that, but I think at least my experience was. Uh, but then I cut a lot, so it's hard to know. But, um, but kids today are micromanaged in every way. And creativity is is pushed out of them. They must color within the lines. Um, the other thing that happens is if they, speaking of coloring, you know, you get a little art project that a kid has done. Instead of a parent saying that's nice, the parent will more often than not say, well, that's the most wonderful, artistic, gorgeous thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, it's so unrealistic that it hurts the child rather than encourages the child. You can't go too extreme. The other thing that we do is we're so busy playing fair that we don't encourage anyone to stand out. So we have, in many, many ways, stifled intellectual curiosity, stifled creativity, stifled problem-solving, decision-making, negotiating, persuading. And and now we get into the workplace and, and on some of the LinkedIn um, forums that I, I, I'm in, you know, they're all talking about, we don't have anybody creative at work. How come nobody's being creative at work? So you have a combination of the way we were raised, plus what I talked about earlier in my creativity research, no, no methodology within the organization to enable it. And, um, and then we have superimposed on all of that the, the incredible fear 
that comes from highly authoritarian, highly communist, whether it's authoritarian other ways, dictatorships or communist countries, where people are afraid to be seen. So it's it's hard. It's hard. We have to learn. Uh, we have to. I mean, it's my, my values, right? We have to learn how to fan it, to encourage it from little kids on. So in your opinion, and I'm, I'm asking for your opinion because I know there's just so many different ways this can go. How would you recommend to start encouraging creativity within the workplace? Within the workplace. Within the workplace. Okay. Um, I would have as one of the core values if I were the CEO of a company, the fact that it's okay to try things, the fact that it's okay to make mistakes if they don't get out of the house, if they don't go too far. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the companies that I, I consulted two years ago was Network General, and Harry Saul was the CEO at the time, and one of their values was it's okay to make mistakes as long as it doesn't to the customer. So there, there needs to be the encouragement of trying new things. There needs to be a process in place whereby if you have a good idea, that good idea has a chance of being implemented. And that, that varies. How you do that varies. But it, it reminds me of another of another story. A, a new president had come into a company and um, it was a call center. And he um, brought his managers together and he said, we want to have suggestion boxes. We need to improve things. And so they put up suggestion boxes. And um, over a month or so, he said, you know, you guys aren't bringing me any suggestions. Oh, there's no good suggestions in the suggestion boxes. And this went on for a while. And he finally realized this, there's something wrong with this picture. So he mandated that everything in the suggestion boxes be brought directly to him. And there were some really good suggestions. So we went back to the management and wanting to know how come you didn't bring these to me. And the bottom line is managers were embarrassed. They thought, you know, if it didn't come from them, it would make them look bad kind of thing. Um, and so the, the suggestions were encouraged. The suggestions were read at the highest level. Um, people were rewarded for their suggestions. There was information given to people as to why their suggestions could or could not be met so that people didn't feel as though they were being ignored, but there was a good rationale for not implementing something, for example. So that's one way. The other way, if you're talking about um, um, major changes, major kinds of things, is I put in place a process uh, where you have a series of groups of people whose job it is to say yes, not no. no not, never no, you can't, but yes, let me help you. And the start of that might be a group of people that help you take your idea and, and write a two or three paragraph um, idea about it, okay? Another group may be a group of people that help you put together a small prototype and so on. And, and there are a couple things that happen. One, it's open. It's not skunk works. It's not covert. It's overt. And so upper management can see what's going on if they choose and can put resources to it if it's something that they like, more resources to it, you know, or allow more time or, you know, whatever's needed. Whereas in Skunk Works, you never know what's happening. Um, so you, you have a, ser a series of, 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 yes, we're helping you processes, obviously different people at different times. But my theory is that if I'm going through that and nobody's discouraging me, but they're asking me the kinds of questions that will enable me to get to the next stage. 
I will be the one to come to the conclusion, this ain't doable. This makes no sense. You know, at some point, um, it's not 100% true, but I think it's largely true. So, so what I'm saying is encouragement, acknowledgement, time, um, resources in a kind of a pyramid shape, very little resources in the beginning and an inverted pyramid, very little resources in the beginning. And then as the idea develops more and more resources, but open right now, the best of companies will say, okay, allow 10, 10 to 20% of your time to do your own projects, but they're your own projects. You're looking, nobody's looking over your shoulder, helping you necessarily. And I'm saying create it in in an open environment. And, and, you know, that's the big project. The small project is kind of the suggestion box. There needs to be a way in all of these things to get at a level that's higher than your immediate couple of levels of supervision. And and you know why. I mean, we don't have to go into that for any great length. So it's kind of opening the floodgates and letting it happen, encouraging it to happen, but that doesn't mean allowing people to just willy-nilly make changes. It's a, I think it's an important thing to, to um, highlight. So let me just give you a, a, a quick scenario here. Let's just say, for instance, I'm a manager or an executive of a Silicon Valley company, uh, and there's, there's a frustration going on. So what are a couple of things that you would recommend that I identify within my environment before I contact you to, to assist? One of my CEOs hired me, and he said, raise the bar, make things better. I think at any point in time where you as the CEO or the C-level executive recognize that things in, in your workplace aren't at a high enough level, as good enough as you would like them to be, then what you want is someone who's capable of making things better. And that that includes a whole bunch of things. That includes um, communication skills. It includes conflict resolution. It includes change management. It includes cultural diversity. It includes management skills, leadership skills. What you know, it varies all over the place. Um, it, just let me give you just kind of another example that just popped into my head. I was working uh, with a large company whose IT department, as it happens in many companies, were called um, the Nazis. Everyone hated hated them. And they would smirk and call anyone that called the help desk a stupid user. So you can tell it was a really nice relationship between the two groups. And I was brought in to fix it, among other things, in that particular company. And so I, uh, they were all, well, there's one woman, but they were, other than that, they were all men. And they were all really highly trained technical guys. They were, you know, really well trained. They knew what they were doing and they were outstanding at it. I am a low tech person. And I said, you know, guys, you got a PR problem. Well, I didn't say you're wrong, you're bad. I said, you got a PR problem. People don't understand what you do for them. We need to do a public relations um, campaign. Well, they like that. that. And I, so we started out by having little work groups and talking about what are some of the things you want people to know before they call the help desk. Because, I mean, that was part of the stupid user. Everybody should know you got to plug it in, you know, before you call the help desk. And so they started to describe it. And 
my eyes would glaze over because these guys were so technical and so detailed. And I finally said, you know, guys, I'm your stupid user. And by then they had come to realize I'm not stupid. I'm your stupid user, though. And when my eyes start to glaze over, you are getting into the weeds. You are getting so technical. Oh, oh, okay. And so little by little, I, I changed their communication style. We did um, uh, mouse pads, 10 things to do before you call the, you know, the help desk. And then ultimately, this took time. This was you know, months of intervention. Ultimately, we created a customer satisfaction survey. And as you know, people are competitive, and so they, everybody wanted to get a better result. They wound up getting the reputation of the best internal customer service group in that agency. I never made them wrong. I never told them that they were bad. Uh, but the other thing that I did was I helped them, for example, um, marketing needed a certain something from them. But, you know, the marketing language and IT language are universes apart. And one of the things I teach is cognitive styles and this, you know, how to look at how people think and speak differently. And so I, I managed to I almost be an interpreter, you know, to be a go-between, teaching the marketing people to be more precise, teaching the IT people to be more general in the way in which they, they negotiated their, their common need, you know, needs. So we made, it, we made a profound difference in um, just one department. And frankly, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> Do you remember? What was I apologize? What was it you asked that time? I, I think you, you did... You did answer it. It was basically, I'm a manager or executive of a Silicon when Valley you, company. Oh, when you want something when, better. Yeah. Right. So, so you, you do tell a lot of good stories that have significant meaning to what we're looking to do to help ourselves. Do you, do you share these stories on your newsletter? I sometimes do. I do a monthly newsletter. And um, what, I, what I say in it, again, I, I, stimulation from other people, right? So I've been in a conversation with someone and we were talking about a particular need or a particular topic or a client um, has presented a particular problem and it winds up being an, an article. My newsletter is typically a series of, of small articles. Um, sometimes they may be me griping, sometimes they're how-to, sometimes they're stories from the workplace. I also blog... And as you know, because you have chastised me in the past, I don't vlog any place near enough. <laughs> but um, there are a couple of public forums that I have been um, privileged to, to participate in. And one of them is Venture Outsourcing, which um, I've been writing articles for. And the other is Proformative. And I have been not writing articles for them so much, although I have, but kind of going into the forums and, and making comments. And I'm also um, in LinkedIn and in various groups. So my ideas are out there. Um, there have been um, one of my books, my uh, leadership book, Leading and, and Managing a Global Workforce, was uh, serialized in Outsourcing Magazine, which is published in Malaysia. And each month they did a different chapter in that book. So that was kind of nice. Um, the 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 books the way to get them things of that nature are on the website um, 
and that's www.diamondassociates.net, not .com, but .net, and uh, so you can find out how to get my books. Um, I think Googling me will get you most of uh, the articles that I've written, or at least many of the articles I've written. There have been hundreds of them. And you're on LinkedIn as well. And I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, and it's it's the LinkedIn login plus... Um, slash Arlen Diamond Consultant, all lowercase. Right, so they just did a, do a search for Arlen Diamond and you'll be able to find her on LinkedIn. Right. So Arlen, before we let you go, I would like you to, we're going to plant a seed right now. What I'd like you to do to plant that seed is share one thing you can leave with our community to help them get the most out of themselves or others. Be kind, be attentive, Pay attention to individuality in people. It doesn't mean lower your standards. Hold people accountable. Raise them to the standards you want. Uh, Motivate and encourage and role model raising the bar and making things better. Okay, and before we let you go, one more thing. Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about your mantra. Raise the bar, make things better. That speaks by itself, and it just says so much. But how does that come into play with what you do? I don't work from a formula, from a recipe, from a cookbook. I'm not part of an agency where somebody else has decided what the program is. What I do is observe, listen, question, and then work to find solutions, work with people to find solutions. With is the operable word. Um, I don't stand up, you know, and lecture. I, I interact heavily, and in mini lectures, obviously, but I interact heavily with the people that I'm working with. But it is because I am, I have such a vast background that I think I'm able to see things more clearly because of, of the, the breadth of experience that I've had, the depth and breadth of experience. And so I'm able to draw the people out as a therapist for many years, so I have that skill set as well. I'm able to get them to trust so they will talk about what needs to be done to make things better. So my goal is always to encourage people to speak freely about how they can improve things and what they need in order to improve things. Uh, for example, I, um, I did process streamlining for the city of San Carlos. And when I first went in, we had teams of people from other different departments in the city, including somebody from the Citizens Advisory uh, Board. And the citizens were pretty irate that they felt that, that the way they were treated, but particularly in building and planning, was really not user-friendly. And uh, I, got, I got people to start talking about what rules other departments made that made their work more difficult. And that's a really hard thing to do. That's breaking down silos. That is um, acts of bravery on the part of the people who are speaking out because Typically, you don't talk about what's happening, to, you know, especially out loud when the other guy's in the room. And so because I was able to encourage free exchange of, of thoughts, 
and we did post-it notes. I never let anybody do formal flow charting. We'd start out, you know, butcher paper and post-it notes. We were able to make, I believe, 100 changes in the city, positive changes in the city, and they won a great many awards. So it's, it's uniquely working with people, finding strategies, tactics, formula, whatever word you want to put to it, that's going to work at that time with those people for that problem. And that, I think, is vastly different from what most consulting firms do. Most consulting firms have prepackaged what they're offering. And um, you better fit into it because they're not fitting it to you. And I fit it to you. So, so in fact, I really enable people to get the best out of themselves and others. Dr. Arlen, on behalf of everyone, we would like to thank you for being on the show. And we look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or our guest, Dr. Diamond, you can visit diamondassociates.com or you can leave us a voicemail and we'll play relevant feedback or comments on our next episode. Don't forget, you can also follow our community on Twitter by following Titans Laws. Thank you for being with us and we always look forward to having you as part of the conversation.